0: Well, thank you so much for having me here. I enjoyed worshiping with you this morning and um, at the services there, and um, it is just good to be in Georgia. Yeah, it took us a little while to get out here, and this has been a dream for us for uh, probably four or five years to, to come to Georgia, or to come to, first of all, a college town when we were looking for a place to plant. We wanted to be in a college town because we knew the great need uh, in college towns. And so my wife and I began praying before I went to seminary when I was a lawyer uh, to come somewhere and plant a church in a college town. And as we started looking around uh, for a college town to plant in, we knew we wanted a place that had a great need and a great opportunity. Athens, is, as Shane mentioned, you know it's about 115,000 people, 35,000 college students. So you could just imagine 35,000 college students from around the world and if God could just get a hold of a few of those men and women's hearts and send them back to their own countries or around the states, even a small church could have a worldwide impact. Um, Athens is a, is a difficult place to plant. Somebody told me four out of five church plants fail in Athens, partly because there's a history of racial tensions there, partly because um, it is the poorest metro area in the United States, when uh, when you metro area defined as 100,000 people or more. Um, it's also Southern Baptists recently did a study and they found that only 11% of the population of Athens goes to any kind of religious service whatsoever, whether Buddhist, Muslim, Catholic, Hindu, Christian, anything. 11%. In fact, it's more unchurched than Seattle, Washington, according to this study. So it's just a place of great need, a great opportunity, and great need. And so we're happy to finally have landed there at the beginning of this month, and Lord willing, in the months to, in months ahead as we assemble a, a launch team, and um, uh, we'll be able to launch some public services in the future and bring the gospel and the word of Christ to Athens. So thank you for having us here. You know, similarly, I, I believe, just like... We're excited about planting in Athens. That it's never been a more exciting time in U.S. history to be a Christian. If you could pick a time in history to be a Christian and to be a witness for Christ, you couldn't pick a more needy time, a more desperate time, a more critical time, a more important time. It's become increasingly plain. Um, that no less than a cultural tsunami is sweeping across the United States before our fairy eyes. In the moral landscape, it's changing dramatically. We live in a time similar to what Judges talks about, everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. Tolerance has been redefined, the homosexual agenda, even as we discussed this morning, is gaining ground. What's surprising about all this isn't that the world is becoming more worldly, what's surprising about all this right now is the speed in which the world is becoming more worldly and less influenced by a Christian heritage. The political system is broken. Every poll indicates that people are dissatisfied with government. The economic system is broken. Young people are going to college, racking up large debts, can't find jobs, going back to live at home. That's causing huge demographic problems in terms of marriage, and the delay of marriage, and having kids, and, and all that. Many people are unemployed. Questions abound about how much longer can this economy be sustained by printing money. All these traditional pseudo-saviors of self-invented morality, of, of, of the political system, of government, of money, have been shown to really to be what they are, not saviors at all, but, but Judases pretenders that fail you when you're most needy. And as the cultural changes, culture changes around us at a rapid pace, uh, we should anticipate that in the future, life as a Christian will become increasingly more difficult. We should anticipate that our influence will be marginalized. Our future appears dangerous, appears hard, and yet, the future appears to have many opportunities because there will be many more who are lost. And we have the message. We have the message and the remedy for all who are hurting and who all who need what they most desperately need is to be right with God. We have that remedy in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, we need help. We need help as we engage our culture, and we need help just in those ordinary trials that come upon us as Christians, and as we endure the ordinary course of life, we need, we need help. I want to take you to a psalm that is well-known. It's a well-known psalm, and it's a psalm that my wife and I have constantly gone to as we launch out and plant this church it's a psalm that will give hope to anyone here who needs help in time of trial. If I were to ask you to name the psalm that is most identified with the Lord being our shepherd, you'd probably say Psalm 23. But there's another psalm that talks about the shepherding care of our Lord, and that's a psalm that I want to study with you this evening, and that's Psalm 121. So turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 121, and in Psalm 121, it was written to give hope when you have a need from help from the Lord. In this passage, we're going to see pictured the Lord as a shepherd helping His sheep in time of need, and we'll see three ways that He helps us. So let me read Psalm 121 as we jump in. on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Before we get to the ways in which our shepherd, the Lord, helps us in verses 3 through 8. We meet the author of this psalm in verse 1, who himself needs help. He says, I lift up my eyes to the hills, from where does my help come? Now, we don't know who wrote this psalm, but it falls among the 15 psalms known as the songs or psalms of ascent. sin. That's chapters 120 through 134, those 15 Psalms. It was the goal of every righteous Jew, at some point, to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship, at least once in their lifetime. And as they were ascend the hills to Jerusalem, and even the steps of the temple, they would sing these songs, these Psalms of a Sin, chapters one twenty through one thirty four, preparing their hearts for worship. And so this would be one of the Psalms that the pilgrim. Jews would sing as they were to go to Jerusalem. And the psalmist, as he appears to be on a pilgrimage, on his way to Jerusalem, he looks to the hills and he needs help. And the question is, why? Why does he need help? What's in those hills? What's causing him anxiety? Now, travelers in those days... Uh, faced a broad range of dangers. As they were traveling, they could certainly be attacked by wild animals or especially robbers who could be hiding behind the hills in the the bends of the the trail waiting for unguarded travelers, unsuspecting travelers to be attacked as they they go along. And perhaps he had been alerted to an enemy that was seeking his life or perhaps he had reached a dangerous part of the trail. The fear must have been somewhat common. Because even Jesus talks about, uh, uh, in in an interesting parallel in Luke 10, he tells that parable that's well-known, the parable of the Good Samaritan. You remember what he said there? He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, so in the reverse direction. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed him Leaving him half dead. One of the reasons that parable was so infuriating to the religious leaders of the day is because it was so believable. And so we get evidence that this this um, this travel to Jerusalem was known to be dangerous. And coming back to this psalm, we don't know what caused this author's fear, but regardless, the point of the psalm isn't what caused his fear, but who came to his aid. The power of this psalm is not in identifying specifically what was the anxiety that he had, and do we have that same anxiety? The power of this psalm is seeing and savoring his Savior, and so he says in verse 2, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. This author of the psalm, this psalmist, has only one help, and that's the Lord, Yahweh, that personal name of God that um, God Himself gave Himself, you remember in the burning bush at in Exodus chapter 3. It was this, this Yahweh who rescued Israel from Egypt. It was this Yahweh who opened the Red Sea and made the Israelites pass on dry ground. It was this Yahweh who gave the Israelites fresh water, Marah. It was this Yahweh who gave them bread to eat from heaven. It was this Yahweh who who gave them water to eat or to drink from a rock and protection from their enemies and guidance through his glorious presence. And it's this Yahweh who's personally available to help this psalmist. The word help here is the word for giving assistance to the underprivileged. Giving assistance to the underprivileged. Again, it's illustrated in in that assistance the good Samaritan gave to that robber. In Luke chapter 10, for the psalmist, knowing the Lord was present, gave him, gave him comfort. And as the psalmist contemplates where his help is coming from, it's as if his heart just leaps beyond his present anxiety, the hills, and into the heavens. And he says that this, this Yahweh is the one who made heaven and earth. That that idea that God is this mighty worker, Um, all his sufficient power is standing ready to help him no matter his circumstance. It's interesting. The Lord made the hills. And because he made the hills, he owns the hills. And if it was true that his enemy was standing in the hills, he's standing on dangerous territory. Because he's standing on the territory of his rescuer. He's standing on in the territory of his protector because it's the Lord who is his help. This is the foundation that makes all the rest of this psalm encouraging. I wonder if you know this help. More importantly, do you know the God of this help? I want you to notice that there's a shift between verses 2 and 3. The pronouns shift from the first person to the second person. In verses 1 and 2, it says, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. But notice in verse 3 through the rest of the psalm, the pronouns now shift to second person. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you Will not slumber. Behold, behold, he who keeps Israel neither slumber nor sleep. Verse five, the Lord is your keeper, the Lord is your shade. Verse seven, the Lord will keep you from all evil, he will keep your life. Verse eight, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in. Here the psalmist moves from this confession of fear to witness. When I was a lawyer in Minneapolis, the most powerful testimony I ever had was eyewitness testimony. It was that testimony that says of somebody who could stand in the courtroom before the judge or the jury and say, I was there. I saw it. I heard it. I know what happened. And here this psalmist, he testifies to us that not only did he experience the help of the Lord, he can now tell you about the help of the Lord. This same Yahweh who broke apart the Red Sea and made dry ground, it's this Yahweh who now stands ready not just to help him, but to help you. This, This writer can bear witness that the Lord helped him on his journey. Listen, unless you know the God of this help, you cannot know the help of this God. That is, the promises that are found so wonderfully in verses 3 to 8, they only apply to God's people. Jesus said in John fourteen six 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Except through me. So on this side of the cross, we know that only those who have repented of their sin and trusted for the, entrusted in Christ for the forgiveness of the sin for the work that Jesus did on the cross can claim the promises of God's people and know this help when facing their trials. I also want you to note that there's a, shift, a second shift in these verses and you may have noticed that when we read the passage and that the Lord is pictured as a shepherd not just creator. Even, the word, even though the word shepherd is nowhere in verses 3 through 8, um, there's a word that's repeated six times in the ESV, and it's often used of a shepherd, and that's the word keep or keeper. Did you see that verse 3? Um, he who keeps you will not slumber. Verse 4, he who keeps Israel. Verse 5, the Lord is your keeper. Verse 7, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Verse 8, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in. That word keep or keeper is often used as a shepherd. For example, in 1 Samuel seventeen twenty, it says, David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper. Same word. Same word he used here. And in Jeremiah 31:10, the connection between God and uh, as a shepherd is made very clear as a keeper. It says, "Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, He who scattered Israel, that is God, who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock." So, we're going to see in these remaining verses that the Lord is pictured as a shepherd helping his sheep, helping his flock, helping his people. And he keeps you in three ways. First, he he helps you in that he cares for you. And that's pictured in verses 3 and 4. It says, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. As your shepherd, the Lord cares for you. And he cares for you in two ways. First, he cares for you by, by guiding you, by guiding you. It says he will not let your foot be moved. As a pilgrim ascended the hills in Jerusalem, he could have had fear of slipping. I always get the picture in my mind about the Grand Canyon. Ever seen those donkeys going up and down the Grand Canyon? They're just right on the edge. Is right on the edge. How do they not go? And they have people on top of them going right next to the edge. How do they don't go over the edge is amazing. But there's the picture here of a pilgrim being on a dangerous path, or maybe sheep being driven on a dangerous path, and he's saying, He will not let your foot slip or be moved. The point here is that the Lord guides his people. When you don't know your way, when the, when the path is dangerous, when the trial seems too difficult, the Lord is there to guide you. He's helping you with your footing, as it were. He's holding it in place so you don't slip on the path. And the Bible is just filled with promises of God providing guidance with his people, isn't it? For example, in First Samuel 2.9, he says, He will guide the feet of his faithful ones. In Psalm 25.9, I love this. He, he leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. And we know that the primary way that God uses to guide us is His Word. Psalm 119.105 says, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And He also uses prayer. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Let me ask you, when you don't know what to do, do you know what to do? when you don't know what to do, do you know what to do? James 1: five says, "If you don't know what to do, if any of you lack, lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all and encouragement to pray. Of course, he uses other means like godly counsel and certainly providence, but his primary means of of guiding us is through the word of prayer. Aren't you glad? that God has preserved this word. I mean, it's a miracle in a sense that you have this word after so many centuries, millennia, after it was written. Isn't that amazing? That God has seen fit not to write a love letter, but an entire book to guide you and has preserved it so that you can trust what's in this book really is God's word. And then on top of that, because of the work that Jesus did on the cross, you have the right to go before God himself and petition him. I tell you, the, the, the most nervous times I've ever been has been in front of a judge. I've got a client over here whose case depends on my argument, and he decides whether he wins or loses. And those judges can be mean <laughs> and, and just tough. Um... But petitioning a judge is just so small compared to being able to petition our God and we can go before the throne of grace without fear. This is unfathomable, what God has done for us. Blaise Pascal said, God is, prayer is God bestowing on humanity the dignity of causality. You're wrapped up in this providence of God, God is prayer is God bestowing on humanity the dignity of causality, or at least playing a part of it. Just phenomenal, the privilege that we have, and I pray that we wouldn't neglect it. So the Lord cares for you by guiding you principally through the Word and prayer, and of course, godly providence or godly counsel and providence. He also cares for you by watching over you. Verse, uh, verse, second part of verse three. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber. Nor sleep. A good shepherd not only guides his sheep, but he watches over his sheep. He stays awake at night, alert, watching, um, watching for danger, watching for wolves. And it says the Lord is our shepherd. He never sleeps or slumbers. Slumbers is that word for drowsy. He never gets drowsy. He never gets tired. You know, sleep is a weakness. Sleep is a weakness. You get tired, you get sleepy because you're weak. Because you're weak. If you don't sleep, you'll die. In fact, God has designed it so that once a day, you have to be humbled. You have to be. Because you have to come to terms with your finite strength. Everyone is humbled every time they sleep. No matter the most proud person, they Are humbled whether they realize it or not. They're humiliated. Your insufficiency is laid bare every time you put your head on a pillow. Your body is confessing to you every night I'm weak, I'm weak, I'm weak. Right? But there's no weakness in our God. No weakness in our God. There's infinite strength in our God. He's not sleepy. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't get drowsy. And he's, he's not just watching over you. He's not just watching over you and coolly observing, just observing you, watching you go about your life as if, as if just God just wound up a clock for the world and just let it run and just watched over you. God is no deist. Could you imagine, what kind of shepherd would it be if the shepherd... Watch, just merely coolly observe the wolves tearing apart his flock limb by limb. Reminds me of those UN observers back in the 1990s in Sarajevo. You remember them? There was a genocide going on before their very eyes. Did they do anything about it? No, but they wrote it all down in their journal. What kind of shepherd is that? That's no shepherd. But the Lord. He is our shepherd. He's not just watching over you. He's intervening for you. Right now, right now, the Lord knows all your future. All of it. Every fear, every hurt, every decision that you've got to make, every danger, every conflict, every building you're going to build, every need that you're going to have. And if you're his, Romans 8, 28 gives us this great promise. It says he's orchestrating providence to help you. For those who love God, all things, pain and pleasure, all things work together for good. I love Psalm 139, first verse three verses. says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. You search out my path. This is this wonderful illustration of of God going with a, a, a broom, as it were, to sweep the path before you to remove any hindrance that you can't handle. The Lord's not just watching your steps, He's guiding your steps. So as your shepherd, the Lord, the Lord cares for you. The second way he cares, he, the Lord is helping you in your time of need is that he, he gives you strength. He gives you strength. Verse 5 and 6, it says, The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The picture here is the Lord giving shade to a weary flock to strengthen them. You know, a traveler in Jerusalem could literally be killed by the heat. It reminds me a lot of the climate of Los Angeles. In fact, the climate of Los Angeles and the climate in Jerusalem is not much different. And the topography is not much different in many respects as well. You could literally be killed by the heat. And in verse six, it says that, that word for strike, the sun shall not strike you by day. It's the same word used in Exodus two eleven. You remember when Moses observed someone being struck and beaten to death. This is a grave situation for this flock. It's described in verse 5 and 6. And it's the Lord who not only gives shade, but it says the Lord is your shade, he himself becomes your shade. Your shade. All the time, it says, whether it's sunlight or in moonlight. That's probably just a Hebrew way of saying, um, whether in the moonlight or, or sunlight, just all the time, he's providing shade. What, what does it mean that the Lord strengthens you by providing you shade? I think, first of all, he shades us, he strengthens us by giving you relief. The flock, after a, after a hard day of travel, needs a break from the, from the hot sun. And in order to carry on, in the same way, God gives us strength by giving us relief. For example, we can think of many ways God gives us relief. One way is He gives us relief from the power of sin, from the power of sin. You know, the struggle against sin can just wear you out. And every person in this room has maybe a different, um, some particular sin that uh, this wears them out, that they struggle with, uh, they, they do battle with. And sometimes um, our sanctification, that is the becoming more like Jesus, sometimes the, the wick of sanctification burns so slow and it can just wear you out. And you can plead to God, Oh God, help me in this. sometimes becoming more like Christ, just, it's just so slow. And I can wear you out. But God promises relief even here. In First 1 Corinthians 10.13, it says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape. That you may be able to endure it. That's a promise. That's a promise. The way of escape may be through the fire, but there's a way of escape which He Himself will strengthen you in your time of need. He also gives us relief from not having enough, from not having enough. Um, We're just wired to want more. It's just part of the human condition to want more. We want more time. We want more money. We want more stuff. And we get concerned that we don't have what we need to do what God has called us to do. Such a temptation for us as we plant a church and look at our resources and look at the team that we need to have and just think, oh God, are you going to provide? And one of the verses that we go to over and over again is Philippians 4.19. I just think this, this verse, though it has a context, context, is so broad in its application. It says, and my God will, I love the certainty of the verse, will supply every need. I love the scope of the verse, every need. And I love the ground of the verse according to the riches, to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's a great verse. Listen to me. You will always have what you need from God to do what God has called you to do. And if you don't have it, praise God, you don't need it. He will provide. So, He provides relief in our circumstances, by providing for our needs. So he gives relief. He also strengthens us by giving us rest. He gives us rest. The flock needs rest. We need rest, relief, such as sleep. Rest is not only something that we need, it's also a gift. Have you contemplated that sleep and rest of all kinds of recreation is, is, a, is a gift from God? Um, it's a gift that you don't have to work all the time that you can't work all the time because we have a stewardship before God to make the most of the time that we have. Ephesians 5.16 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of our time. Or the New King James says, Redeeming the time because the days are, are evil. So imagine what a greater responsibility, what a greater stewardship you would have if you didn't require sleep. Um, Count it a blessing. Count it a blessing if you're the kind of person, I just think God has humbled me by doing something with sleep, because I don't like sleep. And um, for me to have a really good night's sleep, I mean, just to wake up and feel refreshed, I'm a nine-hour kind of guy. And I hate that it's nine hours. But I just had to remind myself, count it a blessing if you are a nine-hour guy because that six-hour guy, greater stewardship, <laughs> greater stewardship. I love the psalm. I love Psalm 127 too. Just a few verses or chapters over. It says it's vain. Vain is to demonstrate an excessively high view of yourself. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. This this verse is just meant for me, I think. Rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. right? For he gives to his beloved. I love the promise. He gives to his beloved sleep, or in the NAS, even in his sleep. He gives to his beloved even in his sleep, which means, you know what? God is working for you while you sleep. So the Christian who knows the love of God and the power of God and the wisdom of God can lay their head on the pillow every night, every night saying, there's still things left to be done because only God gets everything on his to-do list done. But my God is working on my behalf even as I sleep. And one day the Bible says he'll give us an eternal rest in heaven where even our work will be restful. You know that we're going to be working in heaven, yes? Even our work will be restful. Um, He says, in Hebrews it says there's a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So as your shepherd, the Lord cares for you. He strengthens you. And the final way in this passage that the Lord helps you is that he protects you. Verse 7, it says, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in. From this time forth, and forevermore, the shepherd's role of guarding the flock is is pictured here, and the Lord protects us from two dangers in this verse. Two dangers. The first one is He protects us from the danger of evil. Verse seven says, "The Lord will keep you from all evil; He will keep you from keep your life." Now, the word for evil in this in this in this verse is just a, a general term for something. That's wicked. It's just a broad term and it comes a range of evil that is brought about by sin or someone sinning. This is the hardest verse in this passage because here's the problem. We know both experientially and from the scripture that God doesn't keep Christians from experiencing pain or sickness or persecution, or wickedness, or evil. In fact, Jesus promised just exactly the opposite when he said in John 15, 20, a servant is not greater than his master if they persecuted me. They will persecute you. And we know Paul suffered immensely. Remember in 2 Corinthians 11, just that catalog of, of of wickedness that Paul experienced, and pain that Paul experienced, and suffering he experienced, such as being beaten with rods, he was stoned, he experienced shipwreck, wreck, he was constantly in danger, he was hungry, he was thirsty. So, what does it mean that the Lord will keep you from all evil? I think the answer is in the next verse. I mean, the next sentence. He will keep you from all evil. That is, He will keep your Life. That word life is the same word for soul. As he's, he's keeping your soul safe. It speaks of the inner life. So it isn't that God is promising you a life free of sin, or uh, free from Satan, or free from sickness, or free from sabotage. He's promising you something more, much more greater. It's, he's promising you that your soul in Christ will be, or in God, will be safe, to be safe. And on this side of the cross we see this so much more clearly that Christ purchased for us on the cross soul safety by becoming the righteousness that we so desperately needed and paid the penalty for our sins that we definitely could not pay. And purchased us eternal life and soul safety. That's why Jesus is able to say in at first glance a confusing passage Luke 21 Verse 16, he says, "You will be delivered up by parents and brothers and relatives and friends." And then listen to this, and some of you that he's speaking to, some of you, they will put to death. They will put to death." And then in two verses later, he says this: "But not a hair of your hair, but not a hair on your head will perish." So he's speaking to the same people. And he says to them, some of you, they'll put to death. Two verses later, to the same people, he says, but not a hair on your head will perish. It's no contradiction. But how do you put that together? How do you put those two statements together? I think it means that when you die and some of you will die, You will not die. That is, you will not perish everlastingly. That is, your soul will be safe. So have no fear. For those who are his, Jesus said in John 10, 28 and 30, or through 30, that um, Jesus has you in his hand and the Father has you in his hand and no one can snatch them out of either one of their hands. Your soul is safe. So the Lord protects us from evil in that way. The Lord also protects us from the ordinary. Verse 8, the Lord will keep you, keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. That that phrase, going out and coming in, is just a, a general term for the ordinary course of life. It's used throughout the Old Testament at talking about just the ordinary, whatever's your ordinary course of life, that's your going out and your coming in. In, in 2 Kings 19, it talks about an evil king and God says, I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. I know your character. I know who you are. I know what you do. In Deuteronomy, it's used of a, a, a worker going out to his field to do ordinary work. That's his going out and his coming in. In Joshua 14, it's used of a military leader carrying out his just normal military duties. And so whatever your daily course of life it says, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in. That is your daily, ordinary ordinary life. And that's, the, and that's another reason why this verse is perplexing. Why would we need protection from the ordinary? What's dangerous about the ordinary? When I was in college at the University of Missouri, there was a student who died and they ran um, an article after interviewing some of his friends in the student newspaper. And his name was Charles. And here's what they wrote about him. Charles is remembered by friends and family as a nature lover, avid sports fan, and caring person who loved Texas Hold'em poker, ultimate Frisbee, comedy, cheeseburgers, The Simpsons, and his mother's burritos. That's how people remember Charles. When people were interviewed, how do you remember Charles? The dominant impression in their minds, the thing that rose to the top of their head, the things that marked Charles's life were, well, he loved cheeseburgers, he loved the Simpsons, And he loved his mama's burritos. That's how I remember Charles. (laughs) See, the point is, you could fritter your life away on ordinary things and not realize that they pose a danger to your soul. It isn't that TV or movies or Frisbees or your mama's home cooking is evil. It's that when those things are the main things, when those things become your majestic things, when those things are the things you give your life over to, when those things are the things that your life is marked by, it has the effect of deadening feelings for the things that are most important. Those ordinary things can push out room in our hearts for the majestic things of God. So much so, that the glorious things are just pushed aside for another episode of The Simpsons. Christian, when you're dead, and for some of you, that hour may be near, don't you want people to say, when they ask about your life, don't you want them to say something about Jesus? How do I remember her? She loved her family. She loved to pray. And she loved Jesus. You want to know about him? I'll tell you about him. He loved the scriptures and the lost He loved barbecues and college football, but that wasn't his life. His life was Jesus. Isn't that what you want to say? You all here at uh, Faith Community are so blessed. So blessed. You have an army to go out into Woodstock and Metro Atlanta for Jesus. I look around a room like this and I just think, Lord, give me that for Athens. Give me a team that will prefer people over the lazy boy. They'll just wear their, wear their lives out for Jesus. So when I do my first funeral, I get to talk about Jesus. Don't waste this gift. So yes, we need a shepherd to protect us from the danger of the ordinary too. So we've seen that uh, as our great shepherd, the Lord helps us in trouble in three ways. The Lord cares for us. By guiding us and watching us. He strengthens us through rest and relief. And he protects us from evil and the ordinary. And so the question before us now as we wrap up is the same one we started. Do you know this help? Do you know this help that this psalmist testifies to you right now? And the way to gain this help is just to cast yourself upon the Lord In every aspect of your life and humbly submit yourself to his lordship and lean on his grace. If you're his, if you're his, he will help you. In whatever trial you're going through, he will help you. So I encourage you to don't lose hope, just trust him. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you As make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you hope in the help of our God and peace in Jesus. Amen.